and welcome to the GMS Podcast with Jorge M. Sanchez. Welcome, folks, to another episode. Uh, I need to come up with a name for you listeners, for those listeners who have been um, regular listeners. I don't know. JMSers? Nah, I don't know. It's two on the nose. Anyway, welcome. This is my podcast, the GMS Podcast. If you this is the first time you're tuning in, thank you. And please check out the rest of the content available at jmspodcast.com. On the front page, or the home page, I should say, <laughs> you can enter email to be part of the email list. And please subscribe, if you have not already, on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, CastBox, Android app, and most of the podcast apps I'm sure you have. And you can follow on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can donate on Patreon. And if you have any questions for me for anything at all, you can email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Thank you. We got a great episode. We have a great guest. Before I get to her, I just want to say, hey, you want to check out some free comedy in downtown San Jose? Well, now you can. Every Wednesday night at Cafe for Scotty. Uh, I just mispronounced that. Cafe for Scotty in downtown San Jose. It is a weekly comedy show that I produce and perform and a lot of my friends performing people anybody can sign up to perform at cafe for scotty wednesday night so stop on by you can also check it out on social media just search for for scotty comedy on facebook instagram and twitter all right plugging two things today's guest is uh a photographer a photographer and an artist by the name of barbara bosevane i hope i pronounced that last name right uh, she is a magnificent person with a great body of work, and I was a little nervous because, uh, as you're about to find out pretty soon, I, I was way over my head in a sense of <laughs> of trying to comprehend uh, the great uh, uh, ideas and and uh, and and projects that she's working on. And she is such a professional, and she has so much experience behind her. And that's exactly why I wanted to talk to her, because I just fell in love with the photography. She has a great set of photography. You should check it out on her website at barbarabosevane.com. You can uh, get pronounce, uh, spell her name by checking the title of this episode, of course. And just check it out. It's great stuff. And a lot of it is local here in the San Jose area or the South Bay. And uh, I was just like, wow, I need to, to really pick her brain a bit. And she's doing a lot of great, stu- great stuff with her photography, including some activism, some uh, ecological activism. I, I hope that's a, the right word to put it. Environmental activism, of course. Jesus. Uh, environmental activism. She's doing some great things over there. And you can also check out an upcoming exhibit that's going to happen in the Coverly Studio in Palo Alto on September 14th. It's called Eco Echo. For more information on that, again, check it out on our website at barbarabosevane.com. So, yeah. Uh, but before we get to all that, um, I want to share a couple things. Uh, I know, I know, especially particularly in, in this fourth season, I'm trying to keep things more professional. You know, just get to the point, And boom, let's get you right to the conversation. I think most of you are here for that. Uh, but this is kind of important. And... and let me start from the beginning, all right? Uh, yeah, I, I do... I'm not sure if suffering is the right word for it, but I do have hypochondriac. I, I get these anxiety uh, and um, panic attacks regarding my health. And I, a lot of the times I go to the doctor and they're like, yep, nope, there's nothing wrong with you. And I'm like, you sure? 
I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm having a heart attack as we speak. They're like, nope, you're fine, Mr. Sanchez. Just, you can go over there. I'm like, but can you, can you check this, this mall I have here? It, it, it could be something. And they're like, nope, you're, you're, you're fine. And this happens more often than I like to admit, but that's just the way, you know, it's something you have to live with. But once in a while, once in a while, where there's smoke, there's fire. And for a hypochondriac, it's the worst feeling in the world. Um, I mean, it's not that bad. I don't know. But I, I went I went to do a, uh, a blood test at the doctor. And turns out they have high enzymes in my liver. So they went to do some ultrasounds, check out what's going on there. And sure enough, they found a, uh, a mass on my gallbladder, which they, uh, they label as a polyp. Uh, the thing is, that it's a pretty big polyp, bigger than average. Uh, they say the most polyps that's about um they're under an inch so and if a polyp is under an inch uh, they uh, they don't worry about it but if it's over an inch even by a little bit by small margin they have to remove the gallbladder uh, completely and turns out that my polyp that I have here uh, that it is an inch and seven centimeters so they're like uh, are you sure you're not in pain I'm like, no, trust me, if I was in pain, I, I, I would I would tell you. I, I'm not hiding anything. And um, so, yeah, so the question here is they, of course, need to remove the the gallbladder, which is too bad because, I, I, honestly, I would have loved to leave this world the same way I came in. But on top of that is they don't understand why the mass is so big. So I don't know what that entails. The, you know, they say it's a, it's a short um, percentage of... I, I don't even want to say the word, you know, I don't want to put in the universe. But for the most part, they, they, they say that it could just be a polyp. But you never know until we pull it out. And why I'm sharing this? Well, I don't know how that's going to affect the schedule of the podcast. You know, I do my best to keep things going on a weekly basis. Uh, I do re- I, I record conversations weeks prior. And, you know, just in case for emergencies like this, uh, where although I may not be able to, you know, have a couple interviews uh, at least I still have content to put out so I just want to give my listeners a heads up I'm okay uh, again like I said it's nothing of alarm it's just I have a pretty big you know pull-up mass on my gallbladder that needs to be removed and I don't know uh, when the surgery is going to happen and I'm not sure how that's going to affect the my recovery uh, and, and scheduling with this podcast so again, once again, uh, I, I, am I freaking out? Of course, I'm a hypochondriac. I'm freaking out regardless. And I, I've kind of been in this situation somewhat before, so hopefully I handle it better. I know last time I uh, I fucked up some shit yeah, with some relationships, but uh, I think I'm, a, I'm in a better headspace to handle stuff. And, um, and yeah, so that's why I want to say thank you. Uh, I don't know why I'm thanking you. I just, I just, fe- I just feel like... Um, I have to say what I had to say. But on that note, <laughs> uh, let's. how about we just continue with this episode? How about that? Uh, so here is my conversation with Barbara Bosevain. Thank you. Um, how do you pronounce your last name? So, uh... It- 
either Boisevain, which is the kind of Americanized version, Beausevain. or um, Boisevain is the French. Ah. So, yeah. Uh, is your family full French? No, no. I'm um, I'm actually very mixed, and uh-huh. I recently learned this summer that I'm Hungarian, which I didn't know about, and one of my uh, nieces is getting our Hungarian citizenship based on a great-grandmother oh, wow. so that um, she can work in the EU, and I'm actually considering doing that. So uh, of uh, of letting go of your American citizenship oh, or, no. or do yeah, dual we do, dual yeah okay we could get dual well do do you travel often to Europe to to you know make you know the I best did. of it yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah actually this summer I spent seven weeks in the south of France mm-hmm. and I did two artist residencies okay. so I did a whole project where I was photographing um, abandoned human structures mm-hmm. and then I take them. And I basically, you know, take Photoshop and I add the nature and trees back in and they look like they're being consumed by forest. Mm. So I photographed abandoned chateaus, an abandoned um, coal factory, um, hospitals, crazy places that, you know, have been abandoned for some time. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. But you, which is kind of similar to your uh, Trees While Love Us and Ironworks work. Exactly. They've done where you do a, a we show the images of of certain human structures, you know, degrading and the nature around it, you know, flourishing. Exactly. What is about that concept that kind of attracts you? It's like a certain theme that you, you seem to be to be going returning. Yeah, I really am interested in this um, idea that we're in the Anthropocene era right now of um, world, you know, the history of the earth Mm -hmm. and that uh, we have made certain decisions um, that affect a lot of other species and we as a species most likely won't be here forever. I mean, most species evolve and change and um, go extinct, and so I really want people to start thinking about, you know, the effects of this epoch that we're a part of, mm-hmm. and that um, what's going to be, what are we leaving behind? You know, what is our legacy as a species? And you know, to see places that are vacant without humans, um, you know, kind of referencing that this could happen in the future. You know, I want people to start thinking about our environment and, you know, who we are as a species in the very longer trajectory of time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the big things uh, that you said in past interviews for that work is you wanted to cultivate awareness and provoke meaningful discourse about env- environmental stewardship. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting because uh, looking at your photograph, it, it, it makes people I feel it makes me more interested it's like a story it's like oh I want to know more about this like how how, how's, how does this work and I think uh, with photography like that's a good way for those who are not familiar you know being in nature of being interested in, in you know understanding those kind of things but it yeah. seems like you've dedicated your work for environmental issues was that always the game plan with the photography no actually so I started uh 
as a um, architectural photographer. So when I was, you know, I studied art and photography in college, and then, um, you know, the work I did while I was in um, at the San Francisco Art Institute, where I got my bachelor's of fine arts, was much more about um, ritual and. Um, you know, there was themes in it about feminism and things like that. Uh, I graduated from school and I needed to make money. I needed to find a job. And the job that I got was actually photographing for an architectural resource company, mm -hmm. photographing for their catalog. And um, through them and through that job, I met all these wonderful architects and interior designers, some of whom I'm still, you know, in contact with to this day and working with um, even today. But I had a architectural photography business for about 15 years full time. And um, so I was doing that. And then I would, you know, I was always kind of politically active. I always wanted, you know, was in job, involved in different social justice issues, different environmental issues, but it wasn't until my youngest daughter, I have two daughters, one of whom is now 12, but when she was, um, when I was pregnant with her, I lived in Mountain View and I received a letter from the government about a Superfund cleanup, uh, basically where I lived, you know, I was living right. on top of toxic, a toxic site that I didn't even know about. Jesus. Yeah. And it was really scary. I, you know, I had no clue about it. And so that was kind of the first wake up call. And then a couple years after that, my dad, who worked at NASA for 33 years, um, he was an aeronautical engineer, um, designed a kind of hybrid vertical lift aircraft. <laughs> you know, he right. designed. Was it for the shuttle? Uh, this was actually for satellites. The, these were um, helicopter. So these were aircraft. You know, his designs were things like the tilt rotor, um, the Osprey. They're yeah. aircraft that turns from a fixed wing aircraft to a vertical lift. Right, so helicopter right. um, mid flight. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was he. So I grew up, you know, with him and going to NASA and you know. Um, being in that giant hangar, Hangar One, there at I've NASA. been there once as a kid. Mm -hmm. It was huge. Yeah, it's the size of four football fields. Really uh -huh. incredible. And anyway, he he had a very long career there, but then he was diagnosed with cancer, literally the week he was retiring. So he um, he got diagnosed with a. Um, cancer of the bile duct and pancreas and we lost him in six months and I later found that many of his colleagues had that same cancer unfortunately and there's something that they use to clean the aircraft at Moffett Field and also all over these military industrial sites called trichloroethylene and um, trichloroethylene Trichloroethylene is also known as TCE, and it's an incredibly carcinogenic solvent mm -hmm. that is used not only, you know, to clean aircraft, but it's used in the semiconductor industry. So the 
actually the house that I was living in in Mountain View, the plume of toxicity that's underneath that neighborhood and several neighborhoods in Mountain View is actually trichloroethylene. It's um, it mixes with the groundwater. You know, we have all these rivers yeah. underneath the ground. And these rivers of their aquifers, and we can't see them, but they're like 30 to 60 feet underground. And those rivers are being pulled by gravity towards the bay, you know. And um, what happens is sometimes based on barometric pressure, they form plumes. And these gaseous plumes actually come up and get into buildings. And that's um, that's what people you know believe has caused you know people to get sick it's very disheartening considering that it was at a place where you know literally the brightest minds will go will go to work at nasa right and, and for them to be affected by them in the surrounding areas uh now considering that that this kind of stuff is is so heavy but at the same time it seems like it doesn't really get out you you had to get a per you know a letter, but I I I'd never I never heard of this, and I'm not sure if that's necessarily yeah. by design or was it. The, th- this is something that is really interesting to me, especially at the beginning of the prod. You know, when I first started working on these issues, mm-hmm. and I actually started out with a dear friend of mine, um, Anna Samoas, um, who's a Brazilian, um, you know, filmmaker videographer. And she and I, the very first time we approached this, we went um, out with her, one of her cameras, video cameras, on the streets of Mount, you know, Mountain View, and we just randomly walked up to people, and we asked them, kind of cold, you know, what do you know about the Superfund sites in Mountain View, and most people, you know, ninety percent of people knew nothing, um, and. So it was very interesting. And what I believe the reason is, is because we live in such a transient place. The Silicon Valley is full of um, people that come here. You know, this is kind of like a gold rush period (laughs) Mm -hmm. that we're living through. And so there's so many people from all over the world, right? And maybe, you know, people like me, I've lived here my whole life. I'm an anomaly. I don't meet as many people um, who've lived here for almost 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. But most people are here because of the tech or, you know, the biotech or, you know, other industries. And, you know, that history is not immediately available to them. They have to kind of look for it, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have the price of the houses, you know, and the population pressure. So, you know, a lot of these companies, they might even know about this pollution, but they're under tremendous pressure to have their sites here, to house people here. So there isn't this transparency that I think would be much more available to people if there wasn't such incredible pressure, you know, on the population here. 
Is there a solution in progress, or, or are they still trying to figure it out how to take care of the of the toxic material? It's a very complex issue. Um, trichloroethylene, the they estimate that it will last in the groundwater for a hundred thousand to hundred fifty thousand years. It's it's very hard to get rid of. Um, mm. I have interviewed a scientist at. Um, Stanford early on in this um, investigation of my own and he did something called bioremediation where you inject bacteria into the groundwater into the um, soil that is contaminated and the bacteria eats the toxic waste it actually consumes the um, trichloroethylene Mm-hmm. But it's a very delicate process. If it's not done correctly, one of the byproducts is VOCs, volatile organic compounds, which are also very dangerous to humans and other species. Um, so that's one you know, issue with that. The other thing is that that process takes like 100 years or 200 years. It's not something that in our own generation we will see happen right Mm -hmm. so it's very hard to get um you know people behind something that's not going to be an immediate fix right you know right but there's there's incredible stories around what they've tried especially in mountain view um the mountain view voice has an archive of um you know following this issue i i would say there i I wish they would get a Pulitzer for the reporting they've done over the last, you know, 20 years for this, but they've really followed this issue. Um, and they, so, you know, that's a resource for looking at um, the history of what's happened in Mountain View. One of the, um, another story, you know, related to trying to clean up the waste is that they had um, filters that they were filtering the groundwater to get the trichloroethylene out. And the filters themselves, I'm not remembering the exact process, but there was a byproduct, right, where they had to dispose of the the filtration. And according to this article I read, that that byproduct um, ended up on Native American land. And, you know, so there's... There's a, this is a very complex issue about yeah. who in, in when environmental issues, you know, it's always it's like this. There's so much complexity and, you know, we we have to be very careful about how we clean up this. You know, where are we going to put the toxic waste? You right. know, how who is going to be affected when it's moved? <laughs> well, somewhere it, and, that being said, I don't think it's um. I think there's been uh, plenty of, of other things that have happened in the area similar to that. The Guadalupe River, I believe, is also poisoned by, by the uh, mining that happened back in the day. Right. And right. then there was Santana Row. At one point, it was a landfill that was toxic material, and now it's a, it's a, <laughs> a shopping area. <laughs> uh, but do you have, for this particular thing, it, do you have a scope of how, of the affected areas? Is it just primarily uh, the, the marshland of, of Mountain View and the NASA area, or or does that travel so, to other parts of the Bay Area? So um, I'm most familiar with Mountain View. I know that there are nine sites 
in Mountain View. Um, there are several, I think there's at least three sites in Palo Alto. There are um, several sites in San Jose as well mm-hmm. um, and Sunnyvale. Um, when you say travel, um, the plumes do travel. And I sat in meetings at the Mountain View City Hall where um, a scientist had come in and he imaged through you know really interesting technology. He was able to um, create a you know image of what the plume looked like and where it may be traveling to. Um, you know the EPA is you know the entity that oversees um, the cleanup of these sites and monitors them. Um, they they do not fund the cleanup, right? They the corporations that um, did these things. They're the ones that have, you know, they're responsible financially. Mm-hmm. But the EPA is um, the entity, you know, that oversees it, and they have an incredible website. You can actually go to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency website, plug in a zip code and see which sites are near where you live. Mm-hmm. So, um, that and a lot of people don't know about that, but that's that's very useful. And, um, you know, I'm very concerned about the current administration that we have in Washington, you know, because they have been gutting right. <laughs> the EPA. I, I don't think that they're going to, you know, bolster it in any way and I think what we need is is more protection not less protection for people and other species mm-hmm. so um, well you have a you have a body of work called the ghost hanger mm-hmm. which I'm sure it was part would you go you know researching this thing right that yeah. was the Moffett field hanger one mm-hmm. yeah and uh, and it's you shot a, a photograph of it when they stripped it. So it's a skeleton of a building. And you mentioned how it brought you, you know, memories when you were as a child there. Um, it just, what you're telling me now and, you know, the artwork you have, it, it kind of dawns on me like how many people has, got, has gone through that area without knowing that such, you know, plumes were, are plumes invisible to the eye, these particular yeah, they're, things? Yeah, they're invisible. And it's not like, um, you know, really, it, it, they affect you if you are living um, in a building that is susceptible to something called vapor intrusion. And this is um, mainly structures that have a crawl space underneath and the vapors get trapped, right? Um, I've been in homes in Mountain View where um, the EPA has installed giant air filters they're they're you know very expensive five hundred thousand dollar (laughs) machines crazy that change the cubic volume of air out every i don't know how many hours right Mm -hmm. the reason why they're doing that is because when the plumes you know this trichloroethylene comes up and people um breathe it you know it's it takes time it's not something that like let's say you're walking down the street and you breathe that nothing would happen to you right so when you're when you're out in open space and you're you know outside it's not an issue 
but it's it it is an issue for people if they're in let's say a home or a building where they're working and they're working there for you know 10 hours or eight hours a day they're you know absorbing they're breathing in potentially you know this um mm. they're it's very very tiny um the thing about trichloroethylene is that it, it's just a very small amount that it make is toxic to humans mm. so that's that's why it's a, a particular issue um hangar one at moffett field the reason why they took the skin off the hangar it that was that was kind of a crazy situation it was not only the trichloroethylene but there was um lead and asbestos and other materials that were slowly disintegrating because the skin of the hangar that was deteriorating over the course of like 90 years right right and that also seeped into the groundwater and went you know into is going into the bay and so, you know, the Sierra Club and, you know, other environmental groups have documented a die-off in that area that they do believe, you know, different species were affected. And so they chose to remove that skin, and which is wonderful. It's just, a, it poses a very difficult question of like, do they reskin it? How do they fund that? Mm -hmm. um, it's now the hangar itself is being leased um, by Google and um, I believe NASA you know leased it to Google if I'm not mistaken but it um, you know everybody it, it these are large problems that are hard to solve you mm -hmm. know what do you put on that hangar hangar now <laughs> you know and it, it's such a beautiful structure architecturally it's visually so fascinating to look at no one wants it to just disintegrate and be destroyed by the weather right so right. we have to do something in some it. ways it was kind of a landmark for yes the city yeah it is is yeah. there is, does your work with this also familiar with work you're doing in cupertino at the uh was it the the lay lehigh permanente the, uh, cement quarry yes yes so that's again um another issue that has to do with water and um how you know basically chemicals and um heavy metals get into our watershed right and mm -hmm. um the stevens creek watershed is um, where the Lehigh Permanente, um, I'm trying to remember the name, they, I think they were Hansen Cement Factory. They've had many different owners, right, that quarry. But that, um, that cement factory has been around since the late 1800s. Um, and our Peninsula Mountains, the beautiful Santa Cruz Mountains that we all love so much, the topsoil layer there has a lot of mercury in it. So anytime you do excavation and you um, remove that layer of topsoil, mercury dust is stirred up and it gets into the air. Mercury is really bad for humans. You know, it's bad for our lungs. 
Um, and that's why, you know, miners had so many problems back in the day, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there, you know, is um, evidence that families living around that, um, the perimeter of that quarry of the cement factory there um, have experienced some side effects from from this um, mining. And, and that's a, another issue. Again, um, the local paper, uh, the I believe it's the Cupertino, um, I'm trying to remember, they're, they're connected with the San Jose Mercury News. I think they're owned by the San Jose Mercury News, but they've done some excellent reporting on, you know, this issue and trying to get people aware of it. And, um, but it's, it's hard because that, cement factory has been grandfathered in from this mining act of like 1891 or something you know it's like really wow. they've tried to shut it down by legal means um but the way our judicial system works is very hard to close something like that right mm -hmm. because well it's such a big supplier to cement around the area right right Right, and that's and that's really I I do acknowledge that. I mean, I my parents moved here in the mid '70s, mm -hmm. you know, and I've seen firsthand all the infrastructure. You know, I saw, you know, Foothill Expressway was built when I was a kid, and I I lived right next to it. You know, in Cupertino, and you were here um, when it was still orchards. I was, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was the they called it the Valley of Hearts Delight, and my sister and I had like cherry pit fights in the orchard you know kids as kids we built forts in the orchards we mm -hmm. played in the orchards and well your yeah. family's originally from ohio right that's correct yeah what do they do in ohio so my dad was working for nasa um at, in cleveland near cleveland ohio at mm -hmm. that time and my mom was uh teaching she was uh, teaching statistics and math um and when they moved here. It was for my job, my dad's job at Moffett Field at NASA Ames, mm -hmm. and my mom, who was a math person, she became a, a programmer. Was so, an easy transition for her to go uh, from teaching to programming. I think she loved it. Yeah. Actually, I think she less loved kids it. involved. <laughs> <laughs> or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I think she. Um, I think it was a very exciting time to get involved. Um, you know, with the early languages, Fortran and Pascal. And mm -hmm. um, I remember she would take classes at De Anza College. And I was, you know, eight or nine years old running around. Like, I have memories while she was in in class there, um, learning the languages. Mm -hmm. So, Well, it's interesting. Uh, I want to talk to your photography a bit because it's kind of related to the photography you did in... Uh, in Cupertino and and also you get of, of the marshes of the salt lakes of the salt I'm sorry not salt lakes the um, the salt flats the salt mm -hmm. ponds and, and stuff like that is you have you have these beautiful aerial shots uh, how, and it seems like how do you manage to get up do you have do you rent out a helicopter is that how it works or? so I was very lucky to meet a helicopter pilot um, who a young a young pilot named Justin who was teaching um, he was teaching these CEOs and and different people who maybe wanted to learn to be a helicopter pilot 
as a avocation, you know, a hobby. Mm-hmm. And so he was working for an outfit in Hayward. And he, um, I approached him. He had been um, a pilot in, I think it was Afghanistan. You know, he was a vet. He was back from um, being overseas. And he liked my work. He liked what I was trying to do with the environmental work. And so he gave me a discount. So I didn't, you know, it's very expensive right. to, to go up in a helicopter. What um, What's great about a helicopter is that you can say to the pilot, you know, I want to hover here or I want to go down, you know, um, 100 feet or I want to go up 500 feet. And it's very easy to do. You don't have to bank or turn, you know, like a, an airplane, you know, isn't as maneuverable. So um, that was, you know, really awesome. And I knew this because of growing up with my dad, who, you know, took us up in helicopters when we were growing up. So I was very So you familiar. weren't scared of heights? No, no. Okay. I, I love helicopters and I always, always have. And you can take off the doors. So one thing that you can do in a helicopter that, you know, is harder to do in an airplane is you can take easily take off the doors of the helicopter, wear a harness and just lean over and take the shots without having any glass. As a photographer, yeah. how do you even plan for for that kind of, uh, you know, shoot? Like, what, what kind of lenses do you usually pack up for that? Yeah, so I um, I use a, a lens that's a 24-70. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a pretty, you know, fast lens. It, it, it's a 2.8. But what I like about this lens is that, you know, I it's a slight zoom lens and I just keep my shutter speed very fast, you know, very fast over, a, you know, one one thousandth of a second. Mm-hmm. And that avoids any vibration. Any blur um, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, people are always worried about helicopters and vibration. And I think that issue really comes up when you're in a you're shooting video, right? Mm-hmm because the frames per second are kind of different. And, you know, so people use something called a gyroscope when they go up with a video camera. And it, it, it's really cool if you've ever seen one, they install the camera in the middle of the gyroscope and it keeps it steady the entire time that they're filming. Um, but with a handheld still camera, you don't need a gyroscope. You just need a fast enough shutter speed. Hmm. Are, are, are you uh, loyal to a brand when it comes to camera? So I mainly use the Nikon. Um, mm-hmm. I've, you know, been kind of loyal to Nikons. I The only reason really, I mean, Nikon and Canon are both kind of head-to-head when it comes to, um, you know, their technology and their glass and all of this. But they, Nikon, once you invest in a system, it's really hard to move over to another system. Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so I have, that's why I um, have kind of stuck with the Nikon. And also they have a very high ISO. So their, their technology with um, the the ISO, which allows you to shoot almost in the dark, <laughs> is very yeah. advanced. And so you don't get that noise that you get with some of the other. I um, shoot cameras. with Canon and I hit, avoid uh you know shooting in dark places or at nighttime so because of that reason it's like it just doesn't do well in in the dark uh but the thing i loved about your photography work over the salt ponds was 
I didn't realize how vibrant it all looked from up there. Yeah. Uh, how much of it was alteration through Photoshop and how much of it was actual, you know, the, the true color of the, of the yeah, flat? Yeah, so what's amazing is that there, there's limited biodiversity because of these salt ponds. There are only two organisms that can survive in that salinity. One is a brine shrimp and the other is a red algae. Um, it's interesting that you're asking this because I'm actually opening a show um, with an environmental art collective that I'm a part of um, called Eco Echo mm -hmm. um, Art and Laboratory. So it's a it's an exhibit that opens um, September 14th in Palo Alto at the Cumberly Art Lab, and that show I'm creating these biomes salt pond biomes where I'm growing the microorganisms and um, brine shrimp for people to see why the salt ponds are that color. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you walk into the exhibit, you'll see my salt pond images um, and also the restoration images that show how the bay is getting healthier as the um, salt ponds are being restored to bay lens but I'm actually going to have live brine shrimp and algae for people to um, be able to see. Oh, we're uh, just looking out there for a consume. I was like, oh, no. that would be interesting. <laughs> so this is yeah. um, my art collective. There's uh, seven of us in this art collective that focuses on environmental issues. We decided we wanted to do something that was more of like a laboratory um, mm -hmm. And this um, laboratory idea where we allow, you know, the viewer to experience, kind of participate in the art itself um, in, and also merge art and science was very compelling to us. So we've put together this show. And um, if you want to see live, you know, salt pond biomes, <laughs> This is the show for you if you nerd out on science. I really enjoy your, your travel work as well. Oh, uh, I, I think in general, I, I think the, the best way I describe your work with photography, it's which one of my favorites photography, is photography with context. You know, there's always some story or something to learn from, you know, and that's why, you know, and why I attract is because, you know, the stuff I grew up with, National Geographic, where it's like, oh, there's a story behind these images. And, and then... You, you do these things where you travel to a couple places. I think you're mostly known for your trip to Peru. Oh, uh, can, can you tell the listeners a bit about that project and what do you feel you took the most out of that experience? Yeah, so that was really the first opportunity for me to basically have my photography help, you know, be um, in the service of social advocacy. And this was something that I struggled with for a long time of going to a developing country or a place where people are less privileged, taking photos and then leaving and not giving anything back to the communities that one is photographing. And this is something that I, you know, decided I didn't want to do. I didn't want to just, you know, show up in, you know, when I was younger, I would travel to, you know, different parts of the world. And I, I went to India and took some amazing photographs in India 
um, and it was and it was mainly a gift from for me, right? I benefited mm. tremendously from that experience and the beautiful culture and beautiful people. When I went to Peru, you know, I really wanted to change that paradigm. I wanted to switch that out, and I was lucky enough. Um, one of my close friends, she actually had a nonprofit that does logistics for medical missions in Peru. So she was bringing doctors down to Peru and helping them, you know, with, okay, where, you know, where can they set up a clinic? You know, how can they um, get all the permits needed and all of this? Mm-hmm. And so I decided to partner with her organization. And so the images that I took um, that were at a very high elevation in the Andes. Um, I, I photographed Quechua, you know, a Quechua community that lives, you know, between 13,000 and 15,000 feet. The, these are people that live on the Patacancha Trail, mm-hmm. which is called the Weaver's Trail. It's an offshoot of um, the Yurubamba Valley, you know, the the trail that goes all the way to Machu Picchu. Right. Um, so this trail, the um, the Weaver's Trail, there are many, many women on that trail and young girls that have all of these handmade fabrics and beautiful, ta- you know, um, tapestry that they've woven. And they use um, hand-colored uh, dyes, natural dyes and you know, really vibrant um, reds and blues and greens in their textiles. Mm-hmm. And so it was, for a photographer, it was spectacular, you know, to photograph. But then I was able to take um, those images and raise money for this nonprofit that, you know, was going back and doing um, medical mission work in that region. Mm-hmm. So it made me feel like, okay, here is, you know, um, a way that my photography can actually impact people that I'm photographing instead of just taking, yeah. right? And that, that was very important to me. It's interesting how mindful you are of that. Because uh, I, when I do street photography, I, I, I mean, I get nervous just with regular people here. Right. I, I mean, I couldn't imagine, you know, having to do that in, in a more impoverished area. Yeah, uh, I'm always... I teach photography. I teach um, both on the high school level and the college level. I I teach at San Jose State Mm -hmm. and at a high school in Fremont. And I I really try to instill my students with this idea that, you know, the way that you interact with your subject, you know, it's very important that you interact with respect. There's a moral obligation that you have as a photographer. And, you know, I really um, stress to them that you ask people to take their photos, you know, and you make that a positive interaction that you're not, you know, um, you being know, intrusive it, or. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah, that, that it is a sensitive thing. And I, I think um, the that relationship that you have to your subject comes through in the image, you know, and I actually have them look at, I have my students look at images and of different photographers work. And we talk about, 
you know, that relationship and, and does the relationship to the subject come through in the image and how comfortable the subject feels, you know, it it's a human interaction. This is not, you know, we're not photographing plant specimens, you know, and right. I really want people to acknowledge that when they're out photographing. Do you feel that's a challenge, especially now, to teach these kind of things uh, in the Instagram kind of kind of era, where these days it's about you know it's, everybody's taking pictures everywhere, right? Right, right. And, and and just for for the sake of likes, is right? That, that, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Well, there's there's a lot of um, look at me, look at me, look at me now that mm-hmm. that is going on, and um, and I think with my students, I find that when I get them engaged in how exciting it can be to look outside of yourself and break out of that bubble right. of, you know, and you really... you point the camera the other way? Oh yeah. my gosh, it's like <laughs> it's like a watershed moment for them. They, you know, it, it becomes something that, that is very deep for them to, to be able to... It's not all about them. You know, the world is... The camera is an incredible excuse mm-hmm. to investigate. Right. It's an incredible excuse to be curious. If you have a camera, you know, with you and you're out there, you know, you can talk to people that you would never speak with. Right. You can you have an excuse to research things you would never research. You know, it's probably a lot like your um, with with your podcast. Sure. You know, yeah. it's just this license for rampant curiosity. <laughs> and, and that's a gift. You know, mm-hmm. I want my students to be curious. You know, I want them to like get, you know, I it's so sad to me that um so much of what visual media is being produced is so similar to it, you know, that there's um these ways that people are presenting their lives to each other that that really um are masks, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and I, I think we need to get away from that. We need to get out and, and photograph, um, you know, all of this important stuff that's around us everywhere. Um, one last thing on that, I was in France, you know, for seven weeks this summer and doing uh, two different artist residencies. And I met, I had the pleasure of meeting a lot of European photographers while I was there. And you know, a lot of them said, you know, Americans need to get, become more active with their art. They need to get out and create art that, you know, either, you know, exhibits their, you know, um, shows their political views or has, you know, they need to embrace subjects that are not necessarily easy to embrace, right? Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting, the perception from um, the Europeans that I talked to. They they really wanted to encourage Americans to use their voice, mm-hmm. you know, their voices in any way they can to try to make change happen in this country, you know, and make things um, more equitable. And, um, but it was really interesting to hear that I was like wow they you know they've noticed or there's a perception that you know maybe we're 
not as engaged as maybe we could be with our um with what we say with our art right right which is i mean going off topic a little bit it's kind of related to that which i found that saying very profound of what they told you because these days with a lot of young people here my generation included it's like uh, a lot of people are building their careers on on this new social media. They call themselves, uh, you know, Instagram influencers. Saying that, saying that with you know catchphrases, and it's like that's that's very true. The, the media you do influence people by the media you put out there. And it's just you know you want to make sure you use that format for the better good, right? Of not just society or whatever, but of yourself as well. Right, so I, there's real content there. That's that's bingo, real content. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. meaningful versus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which kind of I want to bring out about because um, we, we t- like do you feel when you're doing photography for you know for journalistic reasons or for like again reasons to inform stuff do you feel that it adds another level of insecurities maybe to your photography in some ways like do you always have to make sure that you have an image that is com- you know comprehensible as as well as mm-hmm. you know m- makes the point of what you're trying to make. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. So I'm I'm not a photojournalist, mm-hmm. um, but I'm sorry to describe you that way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. okay. Um, I've I've actually had this conversation with several colleagues recently who um, kind of straddle um, this more nebulous um, world where we're we're not quite photojournalists. We're we're definitely you know we're artists. Um, and we're also, you know, trying to get our work out there. So we're putting our work in a sometimes a commercial setting too, right? So we're we're straddling many different spheres. And um, what society likes to do is put you in a box in order to understand your work, right? So a lot of times people are like, "Oh, you know, are you a photojournalist?" Or they want you to position yourself in one of those realms, one of those spheres. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really, but up, you know, I really buck against that because, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, I'm, I'm very clear that my work is not objective. And I, I have incredible respect for photojournalists because mm-hmm. they, they're trying to present, you know, real things that are happening, um, in a way that is, is somewhat objective right now there's a lot of debate about you know um pure objectivity and and the way that photographers enter a scene and that always has an effect on what's happening in that scene but photojournalism is a very to me a very precious and very important realm that we need to protect right what i do is i'm an artist and i take issues I take things that are happening in the world that are real but then I exaggerate them and I change them and I make you know and my goal is to just make people question and want to find answers to problems that come up in in this work mm-hmm. there's there's definitely a polemic in my work my my work is political I'm not trying to be objective I'm definitely positioning myself and saying, you know, I I don't like this. I don't like environmental toxicity. I think it's dangerous. 
mm-hmm. think it's wrong and we need to protect you know human species but also these other species so it's it's a non-objective kind of place where I'm working from from as an artist mm-hmm. as opposed to photojournalism which I I do truly believe can you know walk into this other space of you know the news being a more objective realm and you're trying to present information to people that is more objective do you see what i'm saying i understand and i guess the point i was trying to make more about is uh about just preparing yourself that uh, when you because for example when i do photography usually I, i i shoot and whatever happens in post i try to find the gems right However, when I'm doing photography for a specific series I want to do, that's where I find myself a little more cautious of what I'm shooting. And I'm trying to see if maybe that's something you're familiar with, that feeling of like, oh, I better get the shot right, or on top of that, does that kind of insecurities oh, happen absolutely. to you as well? Yeah, no, it's really... Um, even you know this summer when I was photographing all the abandoned sites in France and Germany, um, I was, you know, really, there's a certain level of um, not knowing, right, of insecurity when you approach any new project and you're trying to get a handle on it. You're trying to find camera position, you know, the best lighting, the best angle, you know, everything. Um, And then, you know, taking that further as an artist, you know, the best end presentation, right, and the best medium that you're going to present it later on. Um, But yeah, there's a a certain level of um, not knowing and insecurity in the beginning and also frustration. Yeah, plenty of that. Yeah, and I'm always trying to communicate that to my students and talk to them you have to be a photographer or any kind of artist you have to become you have to figure out a way to deal with that frustration because first you know you're learning new technologies you're always learning new things Mm -hmm. as in any kind of art form you're doing things you've never done before and you've got to be okay with being frustrated (laughs) because i was Seeing your stuff that you did uh, about in um, Island Light, was that in Greece, by the way? Mm-hmm. Island Light? Yeah. And then yeah. you'll work with the aerial shots and you'll work with, uh, with landscapes or, or, or the woods or the forest right. nature. And for me, that for me, that's the hardest photography. You know, when I go out there and I shoot landscapes, it's like I can't really make, you know, adjust the, the lighting necessarily because you're depending on the sun and the weather. And if you get one bad, you, it's hard to choose what's the best angle. If you need to make a slight change of angle, yeah, instead of you know just moving over, you actually have to like hike about a couple more miles down to get a different angle on, on the certain mountain. So for for me, I find that the most challenging, and yet you know, seeing your work, it's like oh my god, like she, it seems they're almost all per- like you got it, you got the eye for it. And for me, it's like I, I have to like for one shot that I'm happy, I have to take like fifty shots or something like that. But you know that is that is something that's important to know that most photographers do take 50 shots right we don't we don't just drop ourselves into a scene right and take one shot we take many 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 shots 
and then the editing is really where a lot of the magic happens in photography is you know figuring out what what do you want this what is the subject of this photo and how do you want to say it and um in order to get to that you usually are taking many many shots to get to that for example the work you did in iceland uh, you, in Iceland, you were there taking pictures of a volcano. How, how did you approach that? Yeah, um, that was a particularly um, interesting situation. Um, the light in Iceland is absolutely incredible. It, um, the I was there in the summer, and they have this crazy twilight that lasts for six seven hours right oh my God. because the sun does not um completely really set you know there's maybe 45 minutes of what we would call darkness you know here in california they they have very little of that in their summer so what happens is as a photographer you it's like having the your favorite food available to you all the time right you, know, you got that magic you that, magic hour light yeah happening. and you have it for many hours so my challenge when I was there was um actually to get enough rest and I was driving um very long distances you know to get some to, to some of the sites that I was photographing and sometimes I would you know after um six or seven hours I'd realize I was really exhausted and then I'd have to drive another three hours to get to where I needed to sleep right mm-hmm. so um it's 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 an incredibly photogenic place and um the there's so much beauty that's all around you it's it's really I I highly recommend Iceland to anybody who loves photography it's so funny you say that because I have a I do, I do filmmaking as well. And a lot of my filmmaking friends say, go to Iceland as well. So it's it's kind of funny how that place attracts, you know, filmmakers and photographers. It It's a place where the I found the place the most in the world where you feel like the earth is truly alive. That it's truly a living, you know, being or organism itself. Like the volcanoes, you know, the glaciers the you know there's this um geothermal steam that comes from under the ground and so you're like oh my god the earth is living here in a you know a way that yes we we experience that here in california too we're lucky to live with you know wonderful biodiversity here wonderful landscapes here but iceland is like on steroids it's, <laughs> it's just a crazy place now you once described your work as Apocalyptic Sublime, which I believe it was a term by the uh, photographer David Maisel. Uh-huh, David Maisel. Maisel, yeah. sorry. Yeah, uh, important. Can, can you emphasize on that description? Because that's such a fascinating uh, way to describe Yeah, so, um, yeah, that is a, a term that was coined by David Maisel, who I was lucky enough to study with um, in graduate school. He taught a graduate seminar that I took. And um, he, the way that that we think of it, he's not the only photographer of his generation to kind of use this as a trope or a device, but it's this idea that you show people something that's 
horrifically beautiful. You know, you show them the mining tailings, you know, that are um, these chemicals and the byproducts of the mining industry. But when you see them, you know, from 1500 feet in the air, it looks like an abstract painting, right? And people look at that and they want to get closer to it. They want to understand it. And in that process of wanting to understand it and look at it, they figure out what it is. They're horrified. And there's this moment you've captured their attention and you have the possibility of then getting them to think more deeply about what it is they're looking at, you know? Now, does that infer that there needs to be some sort of conflict in the image to get the viewer's attention? I think it's very specific to, you know, this work of that encapsulates environmental issues. I think it's, it's specific to that. So, um, because people are kind of, there's a horror that people experience sometimes when they look at my work or they look at you know it's it's be- there's definitely beauty in it mm-hmm. but it's also disturbing right and that tension is a unique kind of experience for the viewer and it allows the viewer to participate in the work maybe in a different way than looking at my iceberg photos right my right. you know which are just beautiful right um so there's there's kind of this um tension i think that you know really grabs people in a different in a different way and edward bertinsky is another photographer who is really known for this um there's there's a number of them that you know use the apocalyptic sublime as a way to kind of grab people. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, Barbara, we've made it to the one hour mark. <laughs> oh, we great. got through it. Awesome. Uh, before we go, tell me something about your influences. Who are your influences when you're starting photography and who are your influences now? Oh, great. Well, um, I think, you know, the person that I always talk about the most um, in terms of me changing from being a painter to a photographer. So I started out as a painter. Um, I went to Parsons School of Design in New York and I was studying painting. Mm -hmm. And um, I really never considered photography um, very much. I knew, you know, of it as a discipline, but I thought I was going to work in a studio and be an oil painter, (laughs) right? And what happened was I went, one summer to Paris and I saw Sebastião Salgado. Um, he's a Brazilian photographer. Right. And he um, had a show at a museum there called the Palais Tokyo. And I saw this work he did titled Workers. And he is a, he's somebody who has a um, really unique background. He, he has a PhD in economics. And so he studied, you know, he worked as a economist for the World Trade Organization. And then he became a photographer later. And the way that his background, his, you know, research and all of the influences of economics, that comes up, bubbles up in his photography. 
In addition, he's a humanist. He's somebody who, it's obvious when you look at his images that he loves humans, right? Mm -hmm. And he wants, you know, he can see the good in people. He, you know, he connects with people in an incredible way in his photography. And um, so that, those things converging in his work, um, you know, it really, really struck me. And I walked out of that show thinking to myself, I'm going to study photography. Um, it was that powerful for me. Wow. Um, so he was a big influence. Uh, I also was very influenced by a local photographer here in the Bay Area named Robin Lasser. And she was my professor and mentor and later collaborator. Um, she's a tenured professor at San Jose State. But she also, like, like Salgado, she just... Um, her work is incredibly humanistic. You know, she's also um, improvises beautifully, you know, in her subject matter. Like she, she's, you know, just a, a really inspirational um, artist and human being. So I'd say hmm. those are the two main influences for me. Awesome. Where can people check out your work? And do you have a, once again, remind them about the upcoming uh, shows you have? Yes, so um, I have a website, and it's barbaraboisevain.com. Um, so that has many um, different bodies of work on it. Um, I also um, have an Insta Instagram account at Barbara Boisevain. Uh -huh. um, and I have an upcoming show with the art collective, um, Eco Echo, uh, Art and laboratory um, that opens September 14th in Palo Alto and it's at the Cubberly Artist Studio program and um, there will be information about it on my website um, on the landing page of my website sweet uh, Barbara thank you so much for coming don't worry it's just the headphones uh, thank you so much for coming it was great talking to you and uh, mm -hmm. Thank you. This was an awesome <laughs> opportunity. Thank you. Once again, check out her work at barbarabosavain.com. It's worth a look. And check out her upcoming show on September 14th at the Coverly Studios, Eco Echo. All right, that's the end of the conversation. Thank you uh, once again for tuning in, and I'll see you next week. And take care. Take care of your health. And, um, yeah, shit. Maybe it's time for a checkup. You never know. You never know. Uh, and other than that, ha have a great rest of your week. Have a great Sunday. And wishing you all the best. <laughs>